3: work. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager, guest hosting. Yes, uh, Christian's filling in for Julie. She's on a vacation this week, and uh, we took this opportunity to dive into a couple of uh, of darker topics, uh, we talked about uh, grimoires, and in this episode, we're talking about a little thing called Satanic Panic. And uh, I feel I feel like depending on where our listeners are uh, in terms of, uh, of age and uh, geographical location, they're going to have varying levels of, uh, of of intersection with this topic. Uh, based on our uh, previous uh, conversations, uh, I believe we both have uh, varying degrees of contact with the satanic panic of the, the 1980s, especially uh, a time in which there was a lot of moral panic and outrage over the perceived threat of secret satanic cults, which sounds crazy. Uh, it may sound crazy to you, but this was a very real atmosphere.
1: Yeah, I mean, the peak of Satanic Panic was between 1985 and around 1992, although Mm -hmm. I think you can probably trace it even a little further back into the late 70s, probably. Yeah. And that, for me, uh, I'm 37, I'm about to be 38, so I grew up. That was the period of time when I was growing up, you know. Um, Ah,
4: Okay, well, we're the same age, so.
1: okay, Okay, yeah, so... So, yeah, like I was, uh, in elementary school while this was going on and it was a, it was something that, uh, my parents weren't necessarily as uh, afraid of it, but I had friends whose parents were afraid of it. Uh, and then, um, we talked about this off air, but I had an experience where, uh, for a year I had to go to a private, uh, religious school and there was a lot of satanic panic, uh, within this school and in particular about demon possession and being uh, the need to be exercised or even uh, we had a, a classmate who was ostracized by our teacher because he was purported to be possessed by the devil
4: oh wow uh, i mean i I definitely grew up as well in a, in a family environment where a lot of there wasn't a lot of uh, of uh, of emphasis on satanic panic it wasn't really a thing in my family but yeah would go to church and you would you would hear about the thread or read about the thread in various youth, uh, publications that were, that were aimed at us about the dangers of say, horror literature about, of course, heavy metal music. And, um, and then there were, I, I, I remember also having, uh, having friends who were really heavily involved in our youth group and, uh, being at a youth coffee house and being asked to come into a back room to set in on an exorcism. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was this whole atmosphere you uh, know, was especially attractive to to teens, in which these uh, these demonic forces were real. There was this there's this war between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and your soul, your mind is kind of uh, the battleground.
1: Yeah, and and it's <sighs> satanic panic, or also, you know, what what it, the claimed practices are generally uh, termed under the. Phrase satanic ritual abuse, yes, um, or SRA for short. We might say that throughout the podcast, but there, there, there was this mm, uh, sort of chaos about the, the the general chaos about growing up as a human being in the world, especially mm-hmm. as an adolescent when you're trying to figure things out, you're trying to make sense of the world, and then along comes this narrative that's basically like you are at the center of this, and and either. Um, these underground mysterious heavy metal cults can transform your soul into, mm-hmm. into darkness or you, you can be guarded and, uh, you know, come out on the side of righteousness. Uh, and it, you know, it sounds silly. It sounds very, um, uh, black and white. Um, but yeah, having lived through it, like it, it's, and especially like going back and then doing the research on this and being like, Oh yeah, I remember when that happened. Uh, yeah. And, but, but, but my little, 10 year old brain, you know, in 1987, (laughs) couldn't, couldn't exactly make sense of it, you know? Uh, yeah, it's just some fascinating stuff, but, um, largely satanic panic was a combination of, hmm, that, uh, there was this idea of repressed memories being brought back and a lot of these repressed memories were supposedly of interactions or torture within satanic underground organizations. Yeah, there's secret organizations that are worshipping the devil and as part of their rights they are abusing, often sexually, uh, very young children. Mm-hmm. And that, that is sort of where the, the moral panic comes in that gets everyone involved, yeah. at least in the Threats United States. to the children. Yeah, yeah. the, the, again, the, this is kind of ironic because I wrote a comic book called this, but think of the children. It's what you, <laughs> you always, They always comes back to with these moral panics Mm -hmm. is that that something is, is going wrong with the children. And in this particular case, it was actually true in a lot of these incidents that there were children that were being physically abused and sexually abused. But there has not been, by and large, evidence that there ever was an underground satanic network or cult that was operating and performing these these acts.
4: Yeah. I mean, certainly there are there are. There are individuals out there that self-identify as Satanists, but Mm -hmm. Satanists of the type that are vilified uh, in satanic panic uh, in in this movement, they never existed. And that's uh, something that's key to to keep in mind. But that's one of the things that's so fascinating about it is that there is no actual religious group
1: that this is based around. It's all based on on hearsay and myth-making and fear. Yeah, and it's... um That myth making largely came out of media sensationalism Mm in the 80s too. And in particular, there was one, uh, uh, hallmark that, uh, we both watched and kinda, kinda went back to, which was Geraldo Rivera in 1988 had a, um, uh, an expose that was called, oh, oh, where is it? The, the title of this thing. Uh, Devil worship, exposing Satan's underground, <laughs> and it was this two-hour uh, talk show that he did, interspersed with various, you know, on-the-scene reports of Geraldo talking to victims of satanic ritual abuse. Uh, but then in the studio, he was talking to Ozzy Osbourne via satellite, and then he had um, a, a Catholic priest on stage, and he had uh, members of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, not mm-hmm. to be confused with the Satanic Panic satanist cults that were supposedly operating uh fbi agents were in the room or on stage who were uh supposedly you know tracking down these underground cults uh it it, re-watching it i expected to be very skeptical Mm -hmm. and instead i found myself saying okay i know about this i know that this is largely a, a a moral hysteria that happened 30 years ago but it's Compelling. I could see why people fell for it at the time and were, you know, deeply concerned. Um, so, yeah, it's just really interesting. But so ultimately, satanic ritual abuse falls under the following claimed practices that were being acted out by these groups, supposedly. Uh, there was human sacrifice, sexual depravity, make of that what you mm-hmm. will, or perversion. Uh, and that, that these were actual statistics that, that law enforcement officials were throwing out. 50,000 or more people were dying a year in the United oh. States of America from satanic ritual abuse, supposedly. And uh, during their torture or murders, they were forced to consume urine or feces or blood. And there was just, you know, basically anything that you can think of as being like depraved acts were placed upon uh, at, the, at, the, at the foot of these the, um, mythological groups. I mean, I, I don't know if "mythological" is the right term to use here, but mm-hmm. they were fantastic.
4: Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you start looking back um, through history, at, like how we got to this point. Because I, I kind of think of it in terms of a of a bonfire, right, um, in which you have all this kindling that's built up, and it gets it's to the point where you, all you need is that additional spark to to really just send it ablaze. So the spark being, of course threats, a a, a threat to the children, Mm -hmm. or, you know, a threat to, you know, a real personal threat to yourself. Uh, Now, if you you go back far enough in time, you'll find plenty of accounts of... um uh, for instance, blood libel, fourteen seventy five, the Simon of Trent blood libel, in which an entire Jewish community was tortured over the death of a two year old Christian boy. There, were, you know, the the claim being that there was a ritual murder of the child. Yeah, um, you, you can uh, you can find parallels in uh, in witch hunts and witch persec- persecutions throughout time, but uh, when you're looking particularly at the twentieth century. Um, Uh, there's a historian by the name of Philip Jenkins uh, who wrote a fabulous piece called Satanism and Ritual Abuse, and this is collected in uh,
1: in The Oxford Handbook of New Religious Movements. I believe it's one of the last chapters in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's a really interesting piece, and I think it's one of the best things that I've read that sort of encapsulates the whole hysteria of the time and sort of points to there being uh, similar themes within the satanic panic hysteria, to uh, the rhetorical themes that were going on with fringe religions throughout right. history, too. You know, there's an em- emphasis on protecting endangered children, as we already talked about. But then there's also this idea that religions are shaped by mass media.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And um, and yeah, it's the only, this is the only chapter in the book that deals with a non-existent religion. Like, others yeah, yeah. all deal with with actual faiths and splinter groups. But this is one, as we pointed out, never actually exists. Now, you have culturally resonant concepts of the Black Mass, ritual magic, uh, the Witch's Sabbath, all kind of, uh, merged together and, uh, and just a setting back there, uh, in the public consciousness. Uh, on, uh, on top of that you have, uh, you have 1914, you have tales of, uh, Aleister Crowley's, uh, black masses in exotic London. Uh, they were published, uh, they were published stories about this in the New York world. Uh, so already you have this idea that there, there are people out there in the world that are engaging in these dark rites. Uh, you have 1927, Herbert Gorman's, uh, tale, The Place Called Dagon, which is a work of fiction about Satanist, uh, or Satanist-like
1: cults. Uh, that were descended from survivors of Salem. Yeah, this was uh, a fascinating find for me uh, in the research mm-hmm. uh, because I am a fan of weird fiction. I'm a fan of horror fiction, and obviously, a lot of that traces back to H.P. Lovecraft's work. Right. And H.P. Lovecraft was apparently influenced by this book, and it's something that I had never heard of before. I, I mean, or if I did, it just never. Uh, resonated with me.
4: Yeah, same here. Uh, he because uh, he apparently mentions it in supernatural horror and literature, which I've read. But he throws out a lot of authors and titles yeah. that, especially the modern reader, is not going to be that connected with. But apparently, there's a big influence on on Lovecraft, uh, Block. Uh, Henry Cutner uh, Dennis Wheatley various other individuals who uh, who definitely resonated at the time and affected uh, the weird fiction world and then the larger pulp uh,
1: pop culture world to emerge from it yeah and one of Jenkins arguments in this piece is that you can trace almost all the elements of the 1980s satanic panic back to this nineteen twenty seven story the place called huh. Dagon which ultimately you know its summarized as being like a it's a thriller that's set in western Massachusetts which is where I'm originally from <laughs> uh and that uh, descendants from Salem Massachusetts which if if you don't know Salem is is on the east coast of Massachusetts uh, pract- the, the, you know, it, which is famous for the, the witch trials and for, for witchcraft. These descendants moved out to Western Mass and essentially were performing the same <laughs> satanic mm-hmm. rituals and, and, uh, you know, usage of, uh, it actually ties back to what we talked about in a, in a previous podcast about grimoires, the, the idea of, uh, this sort of, uh, ritual magic being used and, and these texts being used to perform it.
4: It's interesting. Jenkins points out that by the 1930s, uh, the roots were already there fictionally. But you also saw a few instances here and there of law enforcement actually beginning to at least entertain the possibility of sacrificial cult activities in, mm-hmm. the, in some crimes.
1: Yeah, I think that that's one of the really interesting things that probably helped popularize it, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that um, th- these various law enforcement officials. And I don't think that they necessarily had malicious intent. They probably thought that they were, they had come upon, you know, actual leads in these stories. I mean, uh, you know what I kept thinking of when I was reading this stuff was true detective, the first season of true detective. And I was like, you could look at the first season of true detective as being about, uh, these misguided, (laughs) uh, police officers who, who think that there's a secret, uh, ritualistic cult somewhere that's, you know, running things and abusing children, (laughs) which, Which ultimately, you know, that's that's what that fictional story is about. But ultimately, that was the same narrative that these uh, FBI agents or police officers or whomever were, were, you know, kind of on the hunt. Yeah, because uh, the thought, thought was going on. They, they they wanted to be doing their jobs, basically.
4: Yeah, because, I mean, on one hand, you have this fictional world, but then you have the, and these fictional accounts of satanic rites. Uh, but then you also have, you know, in the back of everyone's mind, this idea that black mass and ritual mass, uh, magic and, and the witch's Sabbath was real. You have these stories, uh, that, that you're, you're reading about in which there are people that are self-identifying as Satanists. Uh, for instance, uh, 1966, that's, uh, when Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan. And obviously that makes the, that makes the, the media rounds. People are right. outraged about that, even though at heart, um, Levay's uh, satanism was r- really more grounded in uh to a certain extent satire and also uh cultural commentary and as well as sort of carny hijinks and
1: fun. Yeah, I think like this is one of the really important distinctions that we should make here in the podcast so mm-hmm. that there isn't confusion for the listeners is that the Anton LaVey Church of Satan is uh an entirely different philosophy organization they refer to themselves as a religion uh than what was even being imagined as these underground satanic cults and to sort of summarize it i'm not i'm not the best at anton Levey uh f- philosophy but, but my uh takeaway from it is that ultimately it was just about a philosophy of individualism yeah. and that uh LaVey's thing was that each individual is their own god and so they used quote unquote Satan as a metaphorical expression right of yeah. of having pride in yourself and being enlightened because you were your own God uh and it was ultimately uh, about and they they refer to this in the Heraldo special uh rational self-interest but you're right it was very theatrical and it had like elements of, of Dadaism to it I guess mm-hmm. this, this performance where like leve, dresses up in these robes and has you know his uh, his eyebrows waxed so that they look villainous you know he was playing up to it and he was using terms like church of satan or book of satan in order to provoke people but then they were sort of appropriated again uh for this this panic about satanic ritual abuse. And we're often conflated. It, it's really fascinating when you watch that Geraldo mm-hmm. special to see members of of his church. I think at the time LeVay was dead, but like his daughter and, and another member of his church, who at the time was an army colonel, uh, were were on stage and answering Geraldo's questions, basically trying to say, you know, what we're talking about here, that they're completely two separate things this uh you know church of satan is a, a ironic performance philosophy piece essentially right. uh whereas like it, the the uh accusations of ritual abuse w- w- had nothing to do with them right it's, it is interesting that they were kind of uh
4: it, to a certain extent they they were riding the wave of uh of, of the, the the sort of satanic uh culture if you will uh but then also end up falling uh, Falling into the the trap of satanic panic as well, because yeah. you had, of course, satanic elements in rock music. Uh, you had satanic exploitation cinema mm-hmm. that uh, you know really came into its own, especially in the 1970s. Yeah, um, and then on the other side, you also have some real life stuff that's happening uh, that uh, that either has overt uh, shades of satanic culture to it or. Um, some uh, some you know more subliminal content or even just
1: media shades uh, cast on it, mm-hmm. uh, such as Charles Manson, right? Right, yeah. So Charles Manson obviously you know uh, associated himself with quote the devil or Satan, mm-hmm. even in a, a looser fashion, I would say, than Anton LaVey did. And again, uh, I suspect Charles Manson for Charles Manson, it was largely theatrical purposes. Uh, I believe that he had a quote where he said, "Satan and Christ will come together at the end of the world to judge humanity." Uh, and he is actually in that Geraldo special. He had I think Geraldo had done like a previous special a year earlier on okay. murder where he'd gone and visited Charles Manson and interviewed him and he's like you you, you can't even like uh, gather any kind of coherence from their conversation because right. Manson's just rambling the whole time but uh but Geraldo is able to kind of take that and manipulate it through edits and footage to to seem like he, he's at the heart of the satanic uh, ritual abuse.
4: And then around 1977, you see child abuse really becoming a trending topic in the media mm-hmm. uh, with years of media exposés to follow on child murder, child pornography, kidnapping, very much, though, you know, the stranger danger uh, uh, elements of, uh, of of moral panic um, that uh, that really, I mean existed before the Satanic Panic and survived, uh, well, after it continues to survive in many you know, many ways. Yeah,
1: and I mean, you know, it's understandable now uh, to look back on it and to see why parents are probably terrified at the mm-hmm. time. You you see real-life things like the the Jonestown incident oh, yeah. happen where uh, there's a massacre that included many children mm-hmm. uh, that were killed by occultist activity.
4: And so that really takes on a prominent role in the, the media coverage of threats to children, and in this, this case, religiously uh, themed threats to children. Uh, then, of course, you have you have other murderers who end up uh, uh, taking elements from this moral outrage and incorporating it incorporating it into their their crimes, or at least their uh, uh, the way they end up talking about their crimes mm-hmm. uh, after the fact. Uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker murderer, uh, between uh, nineteen eighty four and eighty five. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was he was certainly more overt in it than uh, Charles Manson. Uh, he would mention Satan during his crimes, his first court appearance. He shows up with a pentagram uh, drawn on his hand and he yells, hail Satan. Uh, and of course, that's just that just throws more kindling on the fire. This mm-hmm. idea that there there's a danger here with with uh, with satanic individuals and they want to hurt us. And then there's this there's a, a danger present in culture uh, for our children.
1: Yeah, sort of that um behind the scenes that there there's a Richard Ramirez or a Charles Manson mm-hmm. uh wh- you know they could be anywhere basically it's it's sort of an invasion of the body snatchers all over again you know it's this idea that anybody could be part of these networks anybody uh could lure your children into danger uh or you uh, and, that uh, you should be on heightened alert at all times. Yeah, uh, this explains a lot about me as an adult now, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> having grown up in that period. I'm like, oh yeah, now I understand why that was so hammered into my, my head, you know, to, don't accept candy from strangers. That one, or yeah. like the old, uh, the, is is this an old wives tale or not? I don't know about a uh, girl scout cookies with needles in them. Do you remember that? I one? I never heard that one. Of course, I always heard the, um. The, uh, the the trick-or-treating uh yeah. story
4: you know that oh you need to be careful because there might be razor blades in the apple
1: yeah you know? we used to have to um uh after we would trick-or-treat bring all the candy home and if it was big enough to have a razor blade in it my my parents would you know uh, break it down into smaller pieces to to make sure it was safe well, to eat. Yeah, you
4: gotta be you gotta be careful i mean yeah. there was when i was growing up there was one house in the neighborhood where the guy would put um razor blades in the candied apples every year really but they were really good candied apples so yeah. nobody said you anything know and right just, uh, you we just kind it. of ignore it because yeah if you the... know it's in there <laughs> you just know to take it out and enjoy the treat
1: yeah it's part of it's part
2: of the uh <laughs> experience
4: shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
3: work
4: um and now another another experience another activity that's often thrown into the the uh the the, the, the into the satanic panic culture of course is dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. um i specifically remember getting into dungeons and dragons and this was in the the 90s so uh this was after the satanic panic had died away for the most part but i still received uh, i think a a, a chicklet a, what is it a chick pamphlet uh oh yeah, yeah. jack chick track yeah, I received yeah. it uh, as part of a birthday present from an aunt one year. Oh, it was yeah, anti Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Because, really? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so for listeners who don't know, a chick tract is a um, very small comic book mm-hmm. that is uh, f- usually like a fundamentally Christian in yep. nature, um, warning about the perils of pop culture and how they can draw you into. Uh, not i don't know necessarily satanic practices, but just you know not being a good person and yeah. sending you to hell, basically, yeah, basically, damnation was always the threat yeah and, and it and it would often include a little
4: uh. You know, exploitive or grisly kind of imagery to Mm -hmm. to really grab particularly young readers' attention.
1: Yeah, they're fascinating because they incorporate elements of like the early 1950s horror comics into these, these comics that are ultimately against that kind of pop culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love those things. You you can actually go online and look at like the whole library of them now. They're fascinating. Yeah, the D&D thing for me, I, uh, it must have been the late 80s, early 90s when I probably started playing Dungeons and Dragons as a little kid and shortly thereafter I had that experience where I went to the, um, a religious school that I mentioned at the top and was sort of terrified that, that this box set of dice and a monster manual and, and, uh, you know, uh, Silly stuff about elves and dwarves and gnomes was somehow going to lead to m- my demise at satanic ritual abuse.
4: Well, they did have some pretty heavy demons in there, uh, in addition yeah. to
1: the orcs and elves. And
4: then yeah. dice, you know, there's something kind of arcane and,
1: um uh, about them. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, like, I, we mentioned this before when we talked about grimoires in the other episode, but there's, there's a lot of connections between the system of Dungeons and Dragons world of magic mm-hmm. and, the grimoire occult world of magic, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're connected. And obviously people who weren't familiar with either of those things kind of saw them as being one and the same and subsequently associated them with satanic ritual abuse. But it, it's really interesting. Um, the, the D&D thing, there was a group that was formed in the 1980s called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. And, bothered? <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the acronym was BAD. Uh, and I was serving the acronym then. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I believe that they filed a lawsuit against uh, whomever owned D&D at the time. I don't know if that was Gary Gygax or they had gone to TSR at that time or not. But uh, this group then joined forces with this guy who's a psychiatrist named Thomas Rudecky. Um, cause they wanted to raise the social awareness of the dangers of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and that they, they basically associated it with the idea of that in psychotherapy that you act out role playing, uh, as a way to sort of, you know, recover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, but that within the game, they were using role playing for violence and sex and fantasy and that it would, it would ultimately be the, have the opposite effect. It would, it would lead them down the wrong path. Uh, and it was linked with heavy metal music, which we've talked about earlier and the demons within the thing that this is, what's fascinating to me is it all comes around again after this whole satanic panic movement kind of fades away in the mid nineties. Um, and you start finding out that, That, uh, a lot of this, you know, their accusations weren't true. And then academics started doing real research on Dungeons and Dragons. And they found that, uh, for instance, one of the accusations that bad made about Dungeons and Dragons was that it increased the chance of, uh, um, your kid committing suicide. Mm -hmm. In fact, I believe the founder was the mother of a, of a teenager who committed suicide and, and she blamed it on Dungeons and Dragons, um, but there was empirical research that proved that that, in fact, was not the case, and that rates of suicide were lower in kids who played Dungeons and & Dragons. And there was also uh, no measurable negative impact on their psychological functioning, emotional measures, or reality testing. This is all from an article in Psychology Today. Uh, that was published in 2014 about Dungeons and Dragons, Satan and psychology. Uh, and, uh, so their final conclusions here are basically that the leaders of this group bad had completely exaggerated their own credentials. Uh, they cherry picked their data for convenience, obviously of, uh, you know, making Dungeons and Dragons look bad. And then this is the real interesting fact. So the psychiatrist that they associated with Radecki uh, he in particular was arrested in 2013 for sexually exploiting his patients. Uh, he was <laughs> trading, uh, uh, basically, um, uh, medicine for sexual favors from his patients. Oh. So the, this same guy who is accusing Dungeons and Dragons of being responsible, responsible for sexual abuse himself was a perpetrator.
4: Oh. all right. So, so far we've discussed the, uh, the cultural kindling for the most part. Uh, that leads up to the uh, the moral panic of satanic panic. Uh, that, uh, as, uh, as as historian Philip Jenkins points out in his uh, piece "Satanism and Ritual Abuse," um, you can you can really trace a lot um, of the the SRA uh, satanic ritual abuse uh, uh, outcry to this particular book that comes out in 1980 titled "Michelle Remembers." Uh, it comes out and it really cements this notion. Of ritualized sexual abuse by satanic cults, everything we've been talking about, black robes, um, you know, vile rights, uh, the, the abuse against children. And it entails uh, the so-called Michelle's memories uh, that are recalled during therapy in the 1970s of her sexual abuse in the 1950s in Vancouver. So we're talking uh, Ozzie and
1: Harriet era here. Um, yeah. And it, one of the interesting things about Michelle Remembers, which, again, this was a book that I was not familiar with before we got yeah, into I mean, the research I mean, yeah. for this, um, is that Michelle Smith, who was the, the patient that underwent the therapy and was the subject of this book, um, her therapist later became her husband. So mm-hmm. this man who helped her uncover these memories, they also began an intimate relationship together. But over the course of the years, many people have discredited the claims that were made within the book, um, both yeah, think, psychologists and, I believe, people from her actual past.
4: Yeah, I think uh, literally all of the charges that uh, that come out of her personal accounts of this abuse comes from uh, West African secret societies, accounts of them anyway, that were imported into Canada in the 1950s. But this narrative becomes really popular, and, and it has two key uh, things it does here. It leads to other survivor accounts that spring up, other people that are that are writing books about their their reclaimed memories of uh, of satanic abuse in the past, and it also really pushes and to a certain extent legitimizes the theory that traumatic memories can remain dormant
1: only to be recalled later by a therapist. Yeah, it's really the common theme that runs throughout most of the satanic panic hysteria mm-hmm. is uh th- this 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 scientific idea of repressed memories being a psychological phenomenon that certain therapists are going to be able to dig deep enough and pull out this traumatic memory and make you, you know, realize what what truly made you the way that you are. What what is what is actually causing your problems. Um, and it was everybody from psychotherapists to child welfare advocates. And they didn't, you know, again, like the law enforcement uh, officials that were involved. I don't think that they necessarily had malicious intentions. Maybe some of them saw some profit. I, I would imagine that the author of Michelle remembers uh, saw some good paychecks out of that book's popularity. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, basically, they thought that this was evidence of these satanic cults actually existing. And they wanted to protect small children. That was essentially what they saw from it. Um, And so they used hypnosis or different kinds of psychological protocols uh, to essentially, you know, save people from Satan, to save people from these past traumatic events and to dig up uh, dirt on on the actual, you know, threat that was still out there, um, which which led to a lot of finger pointing and and. in some cases which we'll talk about later with like west memphis 3 uh accusations that send people to jail unjustly. Yeah, I mean
4: uh you can certainly see the attractiveness of it uh both on the um the the the, treat, the treatment side and the uh, the patient side. I mean if you you're, you're feeling like you're out of sorts in the world, like you have some problem and if only you could you could just tear out the the root cause of it, right? And then if there is this uh this narrative that's presented to you—that well, perhaps in the past you were abused; uh, that perhaps you were abused uh, by this nefarious organization—and all the, the main thing we need to do, or at least the first step, is to re- get those memories out of the dark, out of the
1: you know the closet of your mind, and pull them out to where we can uh, dispel them. And to give you an idea of just how prevalent this was. Uh, an organization formed in 1993 around this idea of repressed memories. It was called the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And here's some statistics I found from a USA Today article at the time when it was first formed and they were interviewing them. Uh, they said that um, uh, they had done a survey where they interviewed 3000 uh, f- families and their preliminary findings were that of just these 3000 people, 20 percent of the children within these families said that they, the people who are adults now, but who had been children mm-hmm. say that they had been tortured in satanic rituals. So 20% of the 3000 people that they interviewed, that that's huge to yeah. me and sounds uh, like, like an astronomical number when you apply that kind of generalization to the entire American population. Uh, and then th- there's this also uh, interesting study, a group of psychologists at the state university of New York at Buffalo, uh, looked further into it and they found that of 800 therapists, uh, had at least, or sorry, they interviewed 30,000 therapists and 800 of them said that they had at least once in their sessions with their patients had come across cases of satanic ritual abuse. So this, I mean, there was hard evidence as far as people saw it, that mm-hmm. this was happening, that it was pervasive and it needed to be stopped. Yeah. And of course, these narratives that they're pulling out—they're obviously
4: informed by the uh, the established narrative in the culture that mm-hmm. uh, that of the retrieved memories, but also um, all of these influences we've talked about before: uh, uh, the you know, culture of black masses and, and Sabbaths, uh, every devil movie that, that came out in the 1960s, 70s, yeah. and 80s—all of it coloring your perceptions um, of the adults. Anyway, now what happens? When you attempt to pull these uh, these these types of memories from from a small child, though, from someone who do- hasn't seen Rosemary's baby, who, right. uh, who doesn't li- listen to uh, who hasn't heard R- Geraldo on television talking about the dangers of death metal. Et yeah. Well, we see that in uh, in a very uh, pivotal 1984 case, the McMartin preschool um, sexual abuse case in Southern California. And it, this is a, a case where prosecutors charged that a ring of teachers were sexually abusing hundreds of small children in rituals that involved robes and masks and pentacles and church altars, and the the case now is regarded as completely bogus. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it sent out these waves of fear just through throughout the society. It got picked up on the media and just uh, you know boosted uh, you know tenfold. Um, in this case, like uh, cases to follow, uh, it followed a a particular flow. You had a limited, plausible accusation of abuse that emerges at a school. Mm-hmm. Then you have an have an investigation and you know, interrogate the, the the child, and and then you get this therapist derived account from imp- from an impressionable young ch- child uh, regarding what happened. And since these kids. For the most part, they have no knowledge of uh, of adult sexuality, but they but they can tell that this this concerned adult authority figure is is trying to get something disturbing out of them. So, what does a small child bring to the table? What can they possibly pull out? They start talking about, oh well, they they made me drink pee pee. They made yeah. me eat
1: poop. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically like they go for their version of whatever the worst taboo possible thing could be yeah. at the time. And, you know, so of course they think of it as being things like that. Think, yeah. It's uh, the word coprophilia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that McMartin incident was one of many. Yeah. Uh, there was, I, I believe in the Geraldo special as well, that they, they talked about uh, a Presidio daycare center that had mm-hmm. a very similar kind of. Uh, incident that was, that was labeled as being potentially attached to, um, satanic ritual abuse. And there was an interesting part too where they talked about the McMartin school abuse scandal, I believe, and they, they started comparing <laughs> th- their idea of satanic, uh, rituals as being somehow associated with the Episcopal Church, which I thought was Weird. interesting. It felt like this strange smear campaign against Episcopals as if it wasn't like a a, a valid form of Christianity. It was, yeah. it, it was, it was brief, huh. but it was kind of interesting. And so in, in both of these cases, we see this uh, established in the
4: media, in the, the increasingly in the public mindset, uh, that satanic ritual abuse is a threat to our children, as well as to the child that we used to be, that we all could have been conceivably sexually abused by Satanists in the past, and mm-hmm. we have only to to pull that out of our uh, out of out of the closet of our memory. But the thing is, it's it, it goes beyond just Geraldo Rivera, right? It becomes a part of uh, it, it becomes disseminated outward through professional organizations, through police. Therapists, youth workers, seminars aimed at the discovery of new satanic abuse histories, and so you reach the point uh, by the by the 1980s where the panic is spreading outward into the UK, into Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, South Africa, anywhere that American therapeutic and criminological literature is
1: read. Yeah, yeah, and it's, so the Netherlands part is is one of the ones that's interesting to me. Uh, so, uh, I am a fan of heavy metal music, uh, okay. Okay. and, uh, uh, the Netherlands and Norway in particular, uh, are, are known for as being the home of black metal, this particular genre of metal, uh, which was largely associated with this sort of traditionalist movement of burning down Christian churches. And, uh, some of their members were, were, uh, accused and tried for murder. Uh, and so... Even though they didn't necessarily have, uh, I don't even think like possibly their, their song lyrics have anything to do with Satan mm-hmm. or, or devil worship. But because they were against Christianity, again, the satanic panics, mm, hysteria sort of spread over there.
4: Yeah, so the, the cultural kindling was perfect mm-hmm. for that spark to fly across the ocean and, and
1: take root. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
3: work.
0: Zumo play.
4: It's interesting, too, uh, uh, like how much of the messaging was, of course, aimed at parents, but also at teenagers mm-hmm. uh, about the dangers of all this stuff about Dungeons and Dragons and the music. Uh, and, you know, when you're a teenager, of course, all you want to do is is uh, is find the significance in your life and, and at times lash out against the authority figures and their right. expectations. So you actually end up fleeing to that stuff. Like I I, I definitely had a copy of. Of both that fake Necronomicon. Oh, yeah. And the, and the Satanic Bible. Uh-huh. Like the nice paperback versions of both. Yeah. The Satanic
1: Bible was a bestseller. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I, I think there were a lot of, uh, both adolescents and adults with that same experience mm-hmm. that were like, oh, I'll buy this, you know, it's kind of a, I imagine it's the kind of thing that you would find at Urban Outfitters nowadays yeah. or something near the checkout line. <laughs> yeah.
4: But I remember having both those books, listening to Marilyn Manson. Yeah. You know, very much, uh, engaging in that, you know, in, in, in the, uh, the on, on one level, in the possibility that there was something to do, all this darkness, yeah. but also just in the you know need to stand apart from the adult world.
1: Yeah. The, it's the traditional sort of adolescent anti-authoritarian yeah. reflex. Right. Combined with the um, the hysteria at the time moving around. Uh, satanic ritual abuse. Yeah. So, it, yeah, I could see why the two would be conflated. I mean,
4: especially in a if you're if you grow up in like a Christian uh, or even just vaguely Christian environment in which you have the the uh, the dichotomy of good and evil of God and Satan, mm-hmm. and uh, you're going to have a tendency to sympathize with the villain in that piece, uh, and then uh, and, and buy his book.
1: Yeah, it is. It is right. Exactly. And so, like my experience growing up was literally being in one of these uh private Christian schools where I was told constantly if you do the wrong thing, uh, then you're going to be possessed by a demon and you'll possibly murder your family. I mean, this was like an actual thing that our pastor would tell us in class every day. Wow. And, and so, you know, I mean, this was probably around, I don't know, 90, 91. So, mm-hmm. so towards the tail end of this stuff. But but you know, uh, they fill fill your head with this enough. It's it's as bad if not worse than Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> yeah. or King Diamonds, you know. Yeah,
4: because you know that stuff is just
1: largely engaging and, and fun and theme. It's and, theatrical. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. As a as a person who's into heavy metal, I don't know of a lot of. Uh, people are famous metal musicians that are serious members of a satanic organization.
4: Yeah, yeah, I mean I I, I think of like some of the interviews I've seen with uh um, like Meshuga is a, yeah. a metal yeah. act that, that I enjoy. And uh, if you just listen to their 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 lyrics and their music, you get the, you know very much the uh, the, the theme they're going for, and this the, the dark, the heavy, the you know industrial, disturbing nature of the thing. But then you see an interview with them, and they they just seem like like goofy guys. with yeah. their music. You know? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think that, that that was probably the case with Ozzy Osbourne as well. He's in that Geraldo thing, and it's it's hilarious watching <laughs> him be interviewed. He's much more lucid than uh, the later Ozzy Osbourne of reality TV. Oh that yeah, the one the early come, two thousands. Yeah. yeah, but he. Uh, You know, he obviously wasn't articulate enough to kind of argue on his own behalf of why he was just using these elements, this imagery and symbology, Mm -hmm. uh, theatrically as part of his stage persona, uh, rather than, you know, it being directly impactful on, uh, teenagers in America committing crimes against other children or the, or, or their, their peers even, um, there, yeah, there, there were um, moments in that in the Geraldo special where they they're interviewing kids who are in prison for having killed uh, uh, their, their peers in school. Like, uh, I can't remember the name of the particular um, guy. He'd probably be a little older than us now, probably in his 40s. But um, th- there was an interview with him and he just, you know, straight up blames it on heavy metal uh, and satanic uh, participation.
4: I have a feeling it was Sean Sellers or Pete Rowland. Pete Rowland. Pete Roland. That was okay. it.
1: That was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I think it was also easy for people like that who had committed these atrocious crimes to say, to put the uh, locus of control externally onto something yeah. else and to say, it wasn't me. It's not inside of me. I didn't mean to do this. It was because of heavy metal or Dungeons and Dragons or... Yeah.
4: And they're just, yeah, they're just taking the excuse that the media has crafted for them and presented them and yeah. say, hey, it's not your fault. It's because you got involved in this this thing that has a viral component, that that if you just start rolling the Dungeons & Dragons dice, if you start uh, listening to this heavy metal music, that it's just a slippery slope to just violent outbreaks and demonic possession.
1: Yeah, and that leads us to the West Memphis Three. Yeah. You want to talk about them now? Oh, yeah,
4: because I think that's certainly a case, even though it, it kind of... It, it, it tends to fall towards the end of the life cycle of satanic panic yeah um it it represents some of the worst um the worst residual effects of satanic panic uh at, at least on you know an individual level mm-hmm.
1: so this happened uh in between 1993 and 1995 i believe was mm-hmm. the, uh, the the actual murders happened in 93 i think yes. and uh the the trial lasted, uh, or there are multiple trials, I believe, for two years. Um, but essentially, uh, if you if you want to know more about this, I, I highly suggest that you go watch these documentaries. That they're called Paradise Lost, is that yes. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and HBO, I, I believe. Yeah, and and they're uh, really well put together by a crew that was basically there shooting from uh, the minute these guys were on trial, uh, and it and it sort of documents the. The the cases throughout the twenty years. I might, maybe, I don't know. Does the the I don't. I haven't seen the last one.
4: I don't think I've seen it I, either. I don't though.
1: know if it goes up to the um, twenty eleven when right. these guys were released. But essentially, to boil it down to its simplest terms, these three teenagers in West Memphis, Arkansas, were accused of, tried, and convicted for murdering three younger boys, and uh, it was supposedly part of a satanic ritual. Uh, These these three guys were all fans of heavy metal. They looked the part uh, and it was easy to to place the blame on them. Uh, However, in 2011, uh, they were able to make a plea for their innocence based on DNA that was recovered from the scene and they were released. Uh, Essentially, the judge said, um, you're 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 guilty up to time served. Yeah. Um, So the time that they had served from 1993 until 2011 and and they're out now. You've probably seen there's uh, uh, fictional feature accounts of uh, of this story. What's the movie? The Devil's Not. Uh, Devil's Not, Knot,
4: I believe. It's uh...
1: yeah. It has a uh, Reese Witherspoon in it as one of the mothers of the victims, um, and uh, uh, Colin Firth, I believe, plays uh, a, a private investigator who's working on their behalf to try to find evidence that that proves their innocence. It's
4: a uh, complex case, and it's, it's one that is It's extremely yeah.
1: complicated. Yeah, that's why I, I, I don't feel like we can really do it justice here without doing an entire right. episode on it. because you have bungled
4: uh, investigations <clears throat> on one hand. You definitely have satanic panic in play.
1: Yeah, and there's all kinds of stuff, too, uh, weird stuff that goes on mm-hmm. between some of the parents and the, the people making the documentary where the... The um, filmmakers themselves sort of become part of the story, and there's implications that maybe one or two of the parents might have been involved in the actual murders themselves. It's it's really confusing and disturbing, but ultimately it comes down to that the three teenagers who were convicted of these crimes were, in fact, innocent yeah. uh, and wrongfully put away for crimes they didn't commit.
4: Yeah. of course, sadly, crimes that we we do not, we don't have an answer for. We don't know who was responsible. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's the sad part is that the the, the person or persons who did do it, uh, got away with it. Yeah.
4: But luckily, as we said, this occurred towards the end of satanic panic as it's going out, as it's, uh, as it's leaving the public mindset and and becoming far less of a media uh, obsession, uh, and you might wonder, well, what what caused that? What makes us get away from that? What what creates a situation so that uh, by 1995? You see, uh, you see cases where the media doesn't jump on the satanic bandwagon for, um, abuse charges at an elementary. How do we get to the point where by 1999 you have the Columbine shootings and despite all the various theories that come up initially in the wake of the, uh, that awful incident, Satanism is not one of them.
1: Right. Yeah. That could have very easily have, have been, uh, tagged within the satanic panic easily. And if it had occurred uh, years earlier, um, no doubt it would have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's this really interesting article that I read, uh, um, called the satanic ritual abuse panic as a religious studies data as part of, uh, the journal international review for the history of religions, uh, that sort of, this was written in 2003 that Mm -hmm. summarizes sort of the, the entire, era of satanic panic and looks at this, this sort of ending phase. And their conclusion is there is no ev- evidence for abusive satanic cults existing. Uh, anything that connected them as, as uh, ever existing largely came from these repressed memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or they were extracted from small children who then subsequently recovered from uh, what happened to them through the use of psychotherapy. Uh, but there, there was, there was no actual tenable forensic evidence that these groups ever existed or responsible for these crimes. Uh, and, and, uh, there, there's sort of a, a, a sadder thing at play here, I think, which is that, um, that he, human culture maybe has a harder time dealing with child abuse or violence, especially uh, this this kind of you know horrific violence, as in the case of the West Memphis Three, mm-hmm. especially sexual abuse, um, without being able to place it into a a, a, a fantastic narrative that, that that is somehow outside of the everyday, and yeah. that, that's the unfortunate part about this is that in a lot of these cases where these children and people were abused were hurt, um, oftentimes it was just their friends or relatives. You know, yeah. it and that's wasn't. The,
4: that is the most disturbing thing of all, because
1: yeah. you want to be able to position that
4: kind of thing outside of your immediate sphere. Out, mm-hmm. You want to place it on an other, exactly. and even if they look like you and seem to be the same group, like if the narrative is, "Oh, well, they're secretly a Satanist," that's mm-hmm. far that's far easier to wrap your head around. As fantastic as some of the ramifications are, than to say, "Well, they're just this person that we just thought were like us, someone that lived within our sphere, within our family, even."
1: Yeah, this, this is a good quote that I, I liked from that article that, that addresses that. Uh, the, the author, whose last name is Frankfurter, I don't know what his first name is. He says, Human memory psychologists have shown is clearly not a matter of historical snapshots, even in the cases of trauma. And it is enormously subject to suggestion, fantasy, social conditions, and cultural nuances. So largely I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean
4: you basically had a situation where the experts moved in, the actual experts, not the the ones that would appear on like the Geraldo special and they said Look, it doesn't exist. You had people like uh, Kenneth Lanning, uh, FBI lead investigator on these so-called sex rings, who was a skeptical of it from the beginning and then was an outspoken critic of it in the media. You had a 1994 study of ritual crime allegations sponsored by the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect, and it discredited virtually everything. Um, it's a massive study, and they only found a very few cases of loan or Or paired perpetrators using ritualized tactics to intimidate children or thrill themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, they looked at 12,000 incidents and they couldn't find a single one that provided evidence, quote, of a well-organized intergenerational satanic cult who sexually molested and tortured children in their homes or schools for years and committed a series of murders, unquote. So. UK studies end up uh, backing this up. The McMartin preschool case falls apart. Right. So the media begins to realize, oh, well, there isn't anything to this story. This is uh, uh, they start talking to the actual experts and the, the discrediting of satanic panic becomes the media narrative uh, for a while, effectively killing it off at least in the United States, but then, of course, you have lingering elements of it
1: uh, that remain uh, in other areas, particularly in uh, South Africa, for years to follow. Yeah. And so one of the things that I think is an interesting question for us to sort of pose to ourselves and to the audience is, is uh, so we have had these uh, moments of hysteria throughout human history, you know, um, satanic panic, panic. uh, one of the ones that comes to mind for me is something that I researched here for a video that we did about um, the Pokemon panic in Japan in the late oh, yeah. 90s. Uh, there was this idea that there was an incident where um, an episode of Pokemon supposedly caused uh, seizures in oh, kids. I and then remember, like remember this. Yeah. I, I believe it was something like, I can't remember the exact statistics off the top of my head, but something like 3,000 kids overnight claimed that they all had seizures. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of you know, like, like we were talking about earlier about how our memory and trauma is susceptible to su- suggestion and cultural nuances, um, they recur over and over again in human history, but I can't really remember a, a large incident of that in the last, I don't know, decade, uh, other than Ebola, Ebola and, uh, and, and, and
4: vaccines.
1: Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or at vaccines least and the anti-vaccine movement. movement. Well,
4: I guess on both sides, depending. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of fascinating. They have, not, and neither of those, I, I think, really got the traction that stuff like Satanic Panic did. Right. And I don't know why that is. Um, it's interesting to think about, though. You know, is it is it because of the proliferation of um, social media? It spreads information faster and farther, or is it uh, simply because you know mass media has been around long enough now that there's somewhat of an inoculation, maybe yeah. against uh, the the hysteria that can be spread by it. I'm not sure. Well, there's certainly more voices in the media.
4: Yeah, you know? I mean, on a, there are more there are more channels. There are more people on the channels talking constantly about the subject matter. So yeah, uh, yeah, maybe there's a maybe maybe our uh, our media is less susceptible to long term. Uh, panic with no grounded evidence
1: to yeah it may it does it does make you wonder like could could something like uh witch trials or satanic panic happen today you know would are we as humans uh susceptible to that still
4: i have a feeling we are i think it it a lot of it comes down to uh, the p- t- particular environment that we find ourselves in mm-hmm. and uh and hopefully, I mean, hopefully we are a little less susceptible to it just based on how much information is out there. It just comes down to how much information are we willing to ignore to support this, uh, this, this, this script yeah. for what has happened or what could happen to us that fulfills some uh, need to either make the danger more tolerable they are more palpable, I, I, you know, it, like, like we were saying, sometimes the 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 more outrageous explanation or something is more attractive because mm-hmm. it's it's easier to handle because it's – it's it's you position it outside of your yeah. sphere. And it
1: has lines and boundaries yeah. that, that you can sort of use to, yeah, to, to, again, like stick to the narrative, stick to the, strip, to the script, and um, somewhat tr- – try to understand experiences that are so horrifying that normally otherwise you wouldn't be able to understand them.
4: All right. So there you have it. Satanic panic. Um, we took you through it from the beginning uh to the end of it uh and uh, we would love to hear from any of you out there who uh like us uh, have uh, some uh, element of their childhood immersed in the world of satanic panic or if you uh came about after satanic panic we'd love to hear uh you know an outsider's take on on all of this um, like do you see any of these elements at work in your uh in your modern world um, if you would like to learn more, check out the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. I'll include links out to some of the resources that we mentioned. And
1: uh, what about you, sir? You can find me personally at christiansager.tumblr.com. Uh, and uh, for the How Stuff Works uh, content that I produce, I am primarily working on the Brain Stuff YouTube channel. If you haven't seen that yet, check it out. That's our general science channel. Uh, and I also work on the main How Stuff Works YouTube channel as well, where we're producing shows like What the Stuff, uh, and interviews and content like that.
4: Cool, cool. Thanks once again to Christian for uh, joining me here. Uh, and in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach out to Stuff to Blow Your Mind at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other
3: topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: WORK.